Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress them on the third date guacamole? Well, good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are. They find ripe avocados like it's their guac on the line. They are milk expiration date detectives. They bag eggs like the 12 precious pieces of cargo they are. So let Instacart shoppers overthink your groceries so that you can overthink what you'll wear on that third date. Download the Instacart app to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. Baseball is back. And so is MLB.tv. Watch every out-of-market, regular season game on your favorite streaming devices. Anywhere, anytime, all season long. Follow the action live or on demand. Track four games at once with multi-view mode. And catch up with in-game highlights. Plus, original programs, minor league broadcasts, and local pre- and post-game shows. Go to MLB.tv to start your free trial today. Blackout and other restrictions apply. Major League Baseball trademarks used with permission. Police in suburban communities, especially those with metro stations, are watching for migrant buses, some of which have been stopping short of Chicago to avoid potential fines and impoundment for showing up unannounced. We just don't have the capacity to house any more than the folks we have here that are uh, unfortunately in a bad way and are homeless and we're doing the best we can with those we have. And we know it's not going to stop anytime soon. You have to imagine that that dam is going to break at some point. I'm Jim Hankey, and this week, from a landing zone in Chicago's South Loop to the far west, north, and south suburbs, we're looking at the latest efforts to assist those on board these buses. Let's get looped in, Chicago. It seems that each day we have a new story about Chicago proper or a surrounding township receiving an unannounced bus or even a plane of migrants from states like Texas. In Chicago, this has been going on since late summer of 2022, when a press release from Texas Governor Greg Abbott's office announced the arrival of the first group of migrants bus to Chicago, the third major city behind New York City and Washington, D.C., to receive migrants in droves at seemingly random intervals from Abbott's state. This measure, according to Abbott's administration, was done, quote, to continue providing much-needed relief to our small, overrun border towns, unquote. Continuing via the press release, quote, President Biden's inaction at our southern border continues putting the lives of Texans and Americans at risk and is overwhelming our communities. Mayor Lightfoot loves to tout the responsibility of her city to welcome all regardless of legal status, and I look forward to seeing this responsibility in action as these migrants receive resources from a sanctuary city with the capacity to serve them, unquote. But now suburbs and major Illinois populaces like Rockford and DeKalb are doing what they can to slow or quell the influx of migrants by requiring bus companies, among other things, to provide adequate notice and documentation before a migrant drop-off. It seems in some cases communication breakdowns have led to buses attempting drop-offs at closed metro stations on weekends, leaving townships and the migrants themselves confused and unprepared. We'll have more on the suburban angle of this story later in the episode. But back here in Chicago, WBBM's own Carolina Garibay spent time at the landing zone in the city's South Loop, speaking with migrants who recently arrived to get their story and experience. 
And a heads up before we get into this week's conversations, there are a few acronyms you'll hear that I'll quickly define. When someone mentions the OEM or the OEMC, they're referring to either the City or Cook County's Office of Emergency Management and Communications. And the state also has their own version of this, IEMA, the Illinois Emergency Management Agency. All of these task forces work 24 hours a day, 365 days a year, to support public safety efforts, handling everything from 911 calls and dispatch to larger disasters and emergencies. Without a federal statement on how Illinois is to deal with this influx, these agencies are working together to manage it. Here's my conversation with Carolina about her experience at the Migrant Landing Zone. Well, I wonder if we can start out just talking with people about the landing zone where you were last week. Where is that to give people a sense of location? And we can get into what's around it and what have you, but where were you last week at that landing zone? Yeah, so it's sort of in the Little Italy neighborhood, Polk in Desplaine. So, you know, you show up and it's right at that intersection and they have, I think it's a city building. I'm not exactly sure, but they have OEMC workers in there who were sort of organizing everything. And I saw three CTA buses that were being used as warming buses for asylum seekers coming in. But I showed up and spoke to a couple OEMC people a little bit about what was going on and what they're doing. They weren't able to tell me too much, but actually worked with me to speak with some of the migrants who are staying there. So they are sleeping in the buses, and so that's sort of where they go when they come from when they're either bused here from Texas. I believe some are on planes as well coming from Texas. A lot of migrants have been taken to suburbs first and then come down to the city. Then they go to the landing zone. That's what it seems like. So they have the bus. They provide some blankets, some clothing, food and water. Sort of those basic necessities is what we were told from the city. So the landing zone sort of acts as a temporary place for them to stay while they find more suitable housing for them. So that's sort of the point of the landing zone, it seems like. And that's that's what I was told. And reading the digital article that, that we put up on the website, it was interesting to hear one of the people that you spoke with who was on the bus essentially say what you alluded to. They were in a, and I'm putting words in their mouth a little bit, sort of an affluent suburb and then moved there. Like they don't remember much of where they were. Uh, I don't want to speak out of school and say they weren't told where they were, but there wasn't much recollection of where they were originally, but it was definitely different from where they ended up. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And that was really interesting for me to hear, too, as I I don't know what suburb it was, but that's what they said. You know, it looked like a pretty affluent suburb. He was like there was a a Costco around, um, was able to describe it, but didn't know exactly what suburb. So it's clear that they aren't, not surprisingly, fully aware of, you know, the specific uh, areas outside of the city and, you know, where exactly they are. I think they're just focused on getting to the next spot that is a step closer to some type of more permanent housing. And then right after, I feel like the day after your report, then multiple heating tents uh, were being built the day after through the Johnson administration. They're going to be put up there um, to probably get most people off of those buses, I think, for a bit, at least temporarily. Can you describe that area? Like, I'm not too familiar with the area itself. So I just wonder from your point of view, like adequately, is there room enough for, you know, a little tent population to be kind of set up at least temporarily? I don't know. Yeah, I heard that too. And I'm not exactly sure what the tents would look like. I know before 
the Brighton Park thing was happening, there was I was a huge like winterized tent, and I did see that being built before it was shut down. But I imagine it's you know more smaller temporary tents. I can see a few fitting there depending on how big they are, but it's not a super big space. It's like kind of like a parking lot almost that is right next to the building that's over there. But that you know, and then there are streets, but. Cars were coming down the intersecting streets. They weren't really closed off. So I imagine if there are tents there, they're going to be pretty small. So I'm not totally sure what they're going to look like. But yeah, it looks like they want to get people out of the buses because, I mean, they were they were literally sleeping on the, the seats of the buses. And so I'm not sure if that's because maybe there's just more people coming in. They need space or they just want a better sleeping situation for them. Right. Or who knows CTA's involvement? Like they have sure. to be tracking their buses too and go, we can't have three out there at any you know, yeah. one given time just sitting. You mentioned before about kind of being connected through officials there to individuals who are getting off the buses. Were there interpreters there? Were you speaking with them in their language? Like I'd love to know because I loved hearing yeah. the report <laughs> and hearing and hearing them, you know, speak in their own language and have their, you know, hopes kind of like put out there for our listeners to hear, honestly in the language they felt comfortable with. So can you kind of walk me through that process? I know some Spanish. I'm not fluent at all. My dad speaks fluent Spanish. I never learned, but I took it throughout college and pretty much my entire life going to school, I took it. So I know very basic Spanish. I can do some conversations, but you don't learn how to have these conversations in Spanish class. That's not the vocabulary that you learn. So it was very new for me. I wrote out some questions already that I translated myself so that I would be sort of prepared. But luckily, there were a lot of other reporters there who spoke Spanish. So they helped me out, which was really, really nice. And I really appreciated. They just literally translated. And I mean, they were asking their questions, too. So we kind of worked together to do that, which was really nice. And I, again, just super appreciated because that helped me. Uh, We have another Spanish speaking reporter here. She helped me out a little bit. And honestly, I sent a file to my dad and he translated it too. So there were so many people that that helped me out. But I showed up, I tried to, I started speaking with one of the men there. And then someone from OEMC kind of came out and said, you know, you could speak with them, but you have to go like across the street. So I did have to kind of leave the area and just go across the street and do it over there. So I think every reporter just has to sort of follow that rule wasn't really allowed to take photos past a certain point. They had like a little police barricade thing. So that's kind of how that went. But yeah, it was really important to me with the audio pieces to have it in Spanish, the language they speak, so that, I mean, we can hear it in their own words, in their own voice, right? That's why I love audio is because you can hear it in someone else's voice without me having to like talk all over them. They are coming into this land that's foreign to them, right? So they don't know the language. So I think it's sometimes helpful to switch roles a little bit. And now you're in the position where I don't know that language. I'm now not necessarily uncomfortable. I'm not in my full comfort zone. And to get sort of an idea of how they might be, what they might be experiencing. So that's another part that I think um, adds to it a little bit. Absolutely. And the other thing I want to talk about, speaking of comfort zones, is They've come from another country. They were in a suburb for how long? 20 minutes, an hour, we don't know. Then yeah. bus to Chicago. They get off the bus or they're there for a little bit. They're sleeping. And now they're told, nicely, I'm going to assume, that somebody from the media would like to talk with them. 
that also can put them on their toes too, because sure. like that, that's a whole new thing. If I went to a foreign country and all of a sudden someone from their media wanted to talk with me, I'm not sure how I would respond, but it seemed in listening to the conversations, I mean, it seemed very comfortable. I really just think they saw it as a conversation and just people who are curious about what's going on. And they were very honest. And I mean, that's how I always view interviews anyway, is just trying to, a conversation and trying to have you tell your story. So I think they wanted to tell their story and to talk about what they were experiencing, which I was very grateful for. Yeah, they were very open. I mean, I, I knew how to ask. And the other part that's hard is that because I, I'm not fluent, it's, it was harder for me to be a little more personable, I think, and to maybe ease some of their worries. So I tried my best to do that. But luckily, again, there were other reporters. And it was helpful when you have kind of a group of people and you can all do it together. The last thing I want to touch on is, you know, I would imagine the waiting game is tough. If I'm sitting on a heated bus waiting to go to the next spot and then to be able to get set up with potential work and then to be able to make enough money to send home. It sounds like a lot, but the people that you spoke with, at least this day, seem to have a lot of hope, not confusion and not, um, you know, I'm not sure where my next meal is going to come from or what have you, but it seemed very hopeful. And I wonder if we can talk about that as kind of the last point today. That was something that I noticed for sure. And I I did ask them, you know, like, how how are you doing? And, you know, are you hopeful or or what are your hopes? And they said, you know, we are hopeful that something's going to work out. And they're just so much unknown that they're being positive about what could come of the situation. It really seemed like they were in good spirits. And I think they are, you know, from what I see, you know, they're getting food and water and blankets and have somewhere to stay. So I think they're just grateful to have those necessities. I get the sense that it's better than what they were coming from. And that's what they're looking for. So yeah, they they did have a lot of hope. And um, two of the gentlemen there were brothers. So it seems like some of them are with family, which is probably helpful as well and, and makes it feel a little more comfortable. But yeah, that was something I really picked up on. And it's, it's pretty consistent throughout everyone I, I spoke with. When we come back, we'll hear from the sheriff of Kane County, detailing the December drop-off of migrants in rather rural Elbert and what strategies are now in place should it happen again. That and much more after the break. Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress them on the third date guacamole? Well, good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are. They find ripe avocados like it's their guac on the line. They are milk expiration date detectives. They bag eggs like the 12 precious pieces of cargo they are. So let Instacart shoppers overthink your groceries so that you can overthink what you'll wear on that third date. Download the Instacart app to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. Now with the MLB app, you can get baseball your way. Pick your favorite team, your favorite players, and get customized highlights, stories, and breaking news right on your home feed. Follow the action with Game Tip, where 3D replays add another dimension. Plus, notifications can keep you connected to every pitch, every hit, every game. The MLB app. Baseball, your way. Download it now for free from the App Store or Google Play. Blackout and other restrictions apply. Major League Baseball trade parts used with permission. From Joliet to Hinsdale and elsewhere, suburban communities have pushed over the last few weeks for ordinances to attempt to deter or at least slow bus companies from delivering more migrants unannounced. 
Although individual townships have their own specific requirements, many have, at minimum, implemented a request for advance notice, and that length of time does vary from area to area that a bus would be arriving, and if not, fines in the thousands would be brought upon a participating bus company. Some have gone further, including Elburn, with a census population of just over 6,000 as of 2021, requiring background checks and identification on all passengers 18 or older. We'll hear from Kane County Sheriff Ron Hain a little later as he describes the surprise drop-off of migrants in Elburn last month and what his department now has in place should it continue to occur. The village of Buffalo Grove, a little over 30 miles northwest of the landing zone that Carolina reported from earlier, recently implemented a similar ordinance to try to deter the influx, which our own Nancy Hardy reported on. The Buffalo Grove Village Board voted unanimously to require bus companies give detailed plans at least five days in advance of how riders would be cared for or face fines of $300 to $1,000. Trustee Andrew Stein and others pointed out the village's two metro stations do not have service on the weekends. We're, we're not here to solve the immigration issues that, that face the United States. We are here to provide for the public health, safety, and welfare of those that are in Buffalo Grove and visiting Buffalo Grove. The meeting was not without dissent. A Northbrook resident who works with an immigration advocacy group called the ordinance 100% national origin discrimination. Woodstock, Joliet, Willington, and Hinsdale also passed ordinances last night. So last week, I was able to chat with Lee Goodman, the Northbrook resident who spoke up to disagree with that ordinance. Lee is a retired attorney and a member of the advocacy group Witness at the Border, a national organization working on immigration and border issues. Lee tells me Witness at the Border originally sprung from an attempt to monitor detention centers that were erected during the Trump administration. Now their focus is on various facilities and border crossings and keeping issues that arise in the public eye. I asked Lee what Witness at the Border makes of Texas Governor Greg Abbott's claim about dealing with an unprecedented crisis at Texas's border crossings. Initially, I'd like to push back on calling this a crisis because what we're seeing now has been going on for decades, literally. It's just a question of what particular parts of the border people come to at what time, where they come from. And the time that I've been working on this, we followed on a day-to-day basis. Sometimes people are coming from Guatemala, sometimes Honduras, sometimes Cuba, uh, sometimes Venezuela, sometimes Mexico. To call this a crisis, uh, I think, is is really bringing the attention in the wrong direction. What we have at the moment is a increase in numbers of people showing at particular points on the border. However, we need to keep in mind that the entire border was closed down for several years during COVID. So part of this is just catch up from people who would have otherwise come across. Part of it, of course, is due to other reasons like climate change, people no longer being able to sustain themselves through agriculture, where they are. Part of it is, of course, political deterioration in some of the countries, which is due to lots of things. So to try and simplify it simply by saying there's a crisis that too many people are coming, I think is misleading. Now, what I would like not only Governor Abbott, but any number of other people to do is to really look at why are people coming and what are we doing to help them, as opposed to what can we do to keep them out? That's the problem, is more people want to come in than we want to let in. And the fundamental question is, why won't we let them in? Our own Nancy Hardy reported during that Buffalo Grove meeting this week that you had stated that the ordinance of of requiring 
a detailed plan with at least five days notice of how these asylum seekers on a bus would be cared for. I don't want to put words in your mouth, but I think in that story, it was uh, you calling that 100% national origin discrimination. And I wonder if you can elaborate on that for our listeners. Yeah. If someone was saying black people couldn't get on a bus, we'd understand that as racial discrimination. If someone was saying Jews couldn't get on a bus, we'd understand that as religious discrimination. When we say migrants can't get on a bus, all that we're saying is people who aren't from this country, because that's all that migrants are. So that is 100% national origin discrimination. And from the local to the national level, for many, many years, we have said that that sort of thing is not proper, and it's in fact illegal. You do not have to feel obligated to speak for Witness at the Border as a whole, but what is your suggested solution at this point in time on this ongoing issue? Instead of ordinances against bus companies, like what you're talking about, what would you like to see villages like Buffalo Grove or even the city of Chicago do as a whole? What have they not been doing up until this point, and and what's a good path forward? I'm not sure people appreciate what a good job Chicago and Illinois have been doing compared to many parts of the country. From the beginning, when people started showing up, we welcomed them. And we've managed to accommodate, I think the numbers are around 30,000 up until this point. The suburbs, however, have a tendency in this issue and in many, many issues to simply say, send the problem to Chicago. And there's no reason why the suburbs should be doing that. We've got great wealth and resources in the suburbs. We've got communities that have made statements that they are welcoming communities. And we have an organization like the Northwest Municipal Conference, which works every day with the various towns to accomplish their various goals. It helps them buy everything from paper clips to police cars. There's no reason why these suburbs shouldn't be working together in their broader organizations to help accommodate the migrants right here in the suburbs. You alluded to it a little bit earlier, but what would your advice be to Governor Abbott's office in Texas or other states who are sending asylum seekers here by the droves, what is your request of them to assist in in what they're calling, like we talked about earlier, a crisis at the border? Governor Abbott could be working with other states and with the national federal authorities. Instead, he is using this as an opportunity to gain political fame or advantage for himself and his party and his favorites. He's been sending migrants around as if they were property. And that's a really sad thing when we look at the history of this country and particularly of Texas to be treating people as property. So I would say to the governor, start looking these people as people. They're not harming anyone. All of them are in this country legally and they actually have something to offer. As mentioned earlier, I also spoke last week with Kane County Sheriff Ron Hain who provided insight on what he and his team have seen with drop-offs in their area about an hour west of Chicago. The village board in Elburn acted rather quickly to the to the drop-off last month of migrants at the metro station there. And I had read that with that one drop-off, and correct me if I'm wrong, that all available police resources were being used that night to assist with that issue. Can you sort of walk me through what happened with that arrival and how quickly law enforcement had to act to assist? Well, yeah, certainly we have to remember that a town like Elburn has two police officers on duty at a time with uh, probably a supervisor. I know uh, since it was during the day, their police chief was there. So that's a force multiplier to four uh, police officers on the scene. So obviously that's going to drain your resources for a bit. 
But uh, the bus arrived early in the afternoon and they were waiting for a 2.30-ish metro train downtown. So uh, obviously they they had to stand by. They felt they had to stand by with them until that metro train arrived. So um, that's going to soak up your police resources for that amount of time. I was on the phone with the police chief uh, during that time and he declined any assistance from the sheriff's office. But we recognize in Kane County, we have a lot of municipalities that rely heavily on the sheriff's office for support, especially in an incident like this. So we put together a, uh, a bus response team uh, with three school buses on standby down the road. So let's say a bus drops somebody off far away from the train station or out in the middle of a cornfield, you know, in a, in a, in a remote school parking lot. We can grab those buses, go pick them up, get them to either Alberta or Fox train station, stand by with them until that train comes. And then uh, we have a great relationship with Metro Police Department where uh, they've confirmed once we get them on the train, point them all the way down to Ogilvy, then at that point, um, they've committed to getting them off the train and connected to proper resources in Cook County. Health and safety, no matter what, is the main concern, correct? I mean, w- whether that involves, obviously, the migrants who are coming through, but also those in your county. So you're just trying your best to move these people to the best possible finish line for at least that day. Am I right? Yes. This is all about humanitarianism. And so resources have not been established in the suburbs. They've been established in Cook County. So it makes the absolute most sense for the benefit of everybody to, like you said, get them to that train and get them to the city. Metro is aware of the process. Cook County OEM has a process established once they arrive. So it, it makes the most sense. And it's certainly not trying to pass the buck. Well, let's talk a little bit about that police resource issue. As you mentioned, Elburn declined help from uh, the sheriff's office at that time during that day. But as more and more buses come, you know, I don't know what the rest of King County looks like as far as at any one time during the night, uh, how many officers are on on staff and what have you. So um, establishing the worst case scenario of sorts, like that bus resource team, not everybody can do that. Th- these resources are being pulled from other ways every time a bus comes depending on the township, depending on the village, these resources are being pulled. So it's it's got to be stressful just as a law enforcement agent on a normal day, and then also addressing several hundred people just coming into the area at one time. Sure. So this is my second term as sheriff going into my sixth year uh, in that position. And I tell you what, the last five, six years have been unprecedented, no matter what we're talking about when it comes to public safety and law enforcement, everything from the pandemic to police reform laws, and we have a civil unrest after George Floyd. So we've been very agile, very familiar with uh, quickly deploying resources and supporting issues that may arise. So uh, we're honored to always be able to support our municipalities if their resources are exhausted. That's what we're here for. That's what the sheriff's office is there to do, is to back them up and uh, provide support uh, in any way that we can. So this is an on-call team. So like you said, if we have 10 deputies working a shift at night, you know, they, they come to contact with a bus, a bus that needs assistance. All they have to do is contact our dispatch center. We automatically get called out. Uh, nine deputies and, and four supervisors are available on this on-call list. And uh, and we would go forward from there and relieve uh, either a municipality with low manpower or our, uh, our deputies working that shift. And you might not be able to answer this, certainly, from, from your jurisdiction, but you mentioned Cook County is set up to receive uh, migrants, the suburbs not so much. In Kane County specifically, where do we see that going in the next six months? Like this, this issue certainly isn't going away anytime soon. We're talking in a week where Buffalo Grove and Hinsdale and all these other places are 
trying to do their best to at least slow the process, have some paperwork that needs to be filed, et cetera, before these uh, buses get there. But I just wonder from the suburban standpoint, what is a end game solution to mirroring something that looks like Cook County? I'm just curious, you know, what the talk is in, in that area. Yeah, unfortunately, uh, at the sheriff's office, we're a bit in the passenger seat on this thing. Um, the drivers are going to be our county board and what they want to do with with an ordinance. Um, I don't foresee us having, you know, camps and, and encampments out here in the suburbs, you know, perhaps closer to the city, like uh, DuPage County. Who knows? Big question mark. You know, one of the more confusing aspects, the, the chain of events that brings a bus of asylum seekers from, let's say, Texas to our area, you know, unannounced from who is organizing it to how the people are collected, for lack of a better word, what they're told, if anything, about where they're going, how the bus is paid for, what directions are given to the driver, for instance, to drive from Texas all the way to like Piatone. A lot has to be planned for an unplanned arrival. So if anything, what do we know about those chains of events and how these buses are being directed? Sure. So uh, we know it's being directed by Texas Department of Emergency Management. So whether it's a bus or whether it's uh, an aircraft that was chartered, like what just flew into uh, Rockford earlier this week, it's all coming from and paid for by Texas. Now, as far as the coordination on their end, we have no idea. Um, we are trying to work as close as we can with Cook County uh, Office of Emergency Management to gather that intel, uh, even on a daily basis, like how many buses may be coming in. Unfortunately, what Cook County's hearing from Texas, it's about 20 to 30% reliable um, on the number of buses that will actually arrive. So it, it's really hard to pinpoint. Who knows if they don't even know uh, what, what the exact arrival time would be. The other thing that we do know is on each bus, there's at least one or two quote unquote posts um, who will carry train tickets for them, who will carry uh, some reserve funds to make sure the bus gets to its destination flight. Um, if it does land at a train station, that they have the metro tickets to get into the city. So at least there is a little bit more humanitarian uh, efforts going on on that bus. They're not just getting loaded up in Texas and, and driven north. If you put a loved one in a car, let's say with an Uber driver, and tell them to drive to Elburn and just drop that person off at the train station or what have you, um, with, with sort of no sense of care of what happens after the fact, you know, at, at what point from a law enforcement perspective does this qualify, if at all, as human trafficking? Like by definition, does something else need to be occurring to make that a charge or an investigation? Or is is this simply too large of an endeavor to, to make that distinction at this point? Yeah, everything that law enforcement up here has seen so far is consensual. And that's the big difference between somebody getting out of bus in Texas and taking a, a ride up to Chicago or somebody being forced onto a bus uh, trafficked up here. Everybody seems to be willing and wanting to uh, to take that bus ride. I would assume only so much can be done per village as these arrivals uh, spread further north, further west, further south. How much is your office in, in Kane County, you guys are in the passenger seat, so to speak, are we looking for guidance from a federal level on this, on, on how to proceed? I, I feel like a lot of people are kind of standing with their hands in the air on, on all sides, trying to figure out what needs to be done. And a lot of the request seems to be, hey, we need some federal guidance here. Yeah, so I, that would be wonderful if the federal government came up with a plan. Uh, our state office of emergency management, IEMA, if you know they had a solid plan when it came to whether establishment of continued resources or reimbursement for counties and municipalities that are impacted by this in any way, 
but really all I can control, uh, and it's no shock, and I don't mean to sound tongue-in-cheek here, but it's, it's the sheriff's office and how we respond to this humanitarian effort. So my philosophy is, hey, let's make sure we have a plan in place. Let's make sure we get them to the resources that they need, and let's keep a close ear to the ground to see what may be coming in the way of support or any direction from the state or the federal government. Just to close out, in an ideal world, what do you see happening? I mean, this obviously can't all just stop at the at the click of a button or the snap of anyone's fingers, but what is the best case scenario, how we address this or where we see things going um, maybe in a year's time? I think the best case scenario is we need to address the issue right at the genesis of it all, down at the border. Obviously, there's a gigantic influx that's uh, relatively unmanaged. I won't use the word mismanaged, but unmanaged. And uh, I think Border Patrol is doing the best that they can do. I think uh, Texas Department of Public Safety is doing the best that they can do. But when there's that much of a rush, something has to be addressed there. And of course, that goes to the federal government level. And that from Little O'Kane County, I mean, that's the best that I can hope for. Because as you see the the numbers, the six figures of people that have already come to Chicago, and we know it's not going to stop anytime soon, you have to imagine that that dam is going to break at some point. Sheriff Hayne, thank you so much for joining me and sharing your expertise on this issue. Uh, certainly something we're going to be talking a lot about in the coming months. Just uh, thanks for your time today. Oh, thank you very much. This episode of Looped in Chicago was hosted, edited, and produced by me, Jim Hankey. And special thanks to our reporters, Carolina Garibay, Mike Krauser, Nancy Hardy, and Craig Delamore for use of their audio on various migrant stories this week. WBBM's news director is Craig Schwalb. And Myron Kaplan is our managing producer of national news podcasts. You can find us on TikTok at WBBM News Radio 105.9, as well as on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at WBBM News Radio. Thanks for listening, and we'll keep you looped in again right here next week. See you then. We get it. Attention spans just aren't what they used to be heads in social media and eyes on Netflix. But what do people do with their ears? Well, for one, they're listening to audio. Americans spend 4.4 hours with audio every day. Oh, and you want the proof? Well, you just sat through this ad that's now approaching 30 seconds. What could you say to a potential customer in 30 seconds? Let Odyssey put together a media plan tailor-made for your unique marketing needs. Advertise with Odyssey. Visit ads.odyssey.com.